0: we will come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India have won. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the 81 all Out podcast. This is your host, Siddhartha Vaidyanathan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mahesh Seturaman. Hi, Mahesh. How are you? Uh, hi, Siddhartha. Always good to be back. Great to have you here, and it gives, gives us great pleasure Today, to announce the publication of our third book from our book publishing venture, 81 All Out Publishing. Uh, As many of you are aware, we at 81 All Out have been on a bit of a mission to revive classic works of cricket literature. We began with Mike Marquez's War Minus the Shooting, and then we went on to republish Mike Coward's Cricket Beyond the Bazaar. Today, we are thrilled to announce the third book in our lineup one of gideon hayes early early works the summer game which is a sweeping history of cricket in australia in the 1950s and 60s and a book that is so many things at once it is an economic history of the country a social history of the country of that time a book that is full of illuminating match reports erudite essays interspersed in between a book of great reportage so many interviews and most of all, as far as I'm concerned, a book full of love for the game, for the country of Australia, for the cricketers who lit up the game in those years. The Anira that's um, not as sexy, if mm-hmm. I may use the word, as what came after and not as uh, epochal as what came before with Sir Donald Bradman's Invincibles. And of course, what came after was uh, Ian Chapel and World Series cricket and everything else that changed the game forever, or so we are told at least. So this book was first published in 1997, and uh, it's always been seen as this masterful revisiting uh, of a largely forgotten era. But sadly, the book went out of print many years ago. Uh, it was again republished in 2006, but then it went out of print again. And it's been hard to locate for several fans of cricket and fans of cricket lovers. And in fact, recently, uh, Abhishek Mukherjee, who uh, is uh, the content head in Wisdom, told me that he saw it listed for 64,000 rupees somewhere online. And how much ever he loves cricket uh, reading, I'm sure even that is a bit too much for even the lovers. So we're thrilled to bring it back now. And to celebrate this revival, we have the author himself with us. Uh, for the third time on to and All Out, uh, someone whom Ramachandra Guha was also on the podcast recently called the best cricket writer of all time, Bar None. So hello, Gideon. Hey, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, it's it's nice to be back. And it will be nice to see the book again. Um, it's so rare that not even I have a copy anymore. I look to find when you approach me other. Very good rationale for getting this republished. So I might be able to actually read it again.
0: Yeah, I, I approached Gideon when um, we'd requested Ian Chapel to write a foreword for the book, and Ian Chappell wanted to wanted a copy of the book. I asked Gideon if he had a copy, and he didn't. So we right. had to find a way to send him a copy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, my mum's got a copy.
1: Uh, my mum's actually very scrupulous about keeping copies of all my books, and occasionally I, I do have to tap her on the shoulder and, and ask for them back. The Cricket War was another one I didn't have a copy of, uh, so that was another one that was reissued uh, a few years ago. It was republished by Bloomsbury, and it is it is kind of a shock to realise that you've been around so long that you that
0: you actually have an early period. <laughs> Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Gideon, to start off. Uh, you've written, what, correct me if I'm wrong, 45 books now? I, I, I
1: hesitate to say it, but I've actually... Um, I did a count yesterday because I had to write a new book blurb, and I think the next one will be 48. So oh. a couple
0: of others happened when I wasn't even looking. <laughs> yeah. you. So, and the summer game was probably... And the early one, one of the early ones, right? Maybe like the early five, one of the early five. About
1: that, that. yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I I wanted to, I I mean, I I don't know any other writer who has written so many books, but tell us a bit about what was it, what are your memories like of actually writing that book now, 97? Must seem like two lifetimes ago from your vantage. It is. Um, uh, I'd written
1: The Cricket War, that was the, my first cricket book, and I'd done a quickie called "The Border Years" after that. But one of the one of the outcomes of researching that period of 1977 to 1979 was the the realization that a lot of the discontents expressed in that period were the uh, the outcomes, the long term pent up outcomes of debates that had been. Interior to the game through the 1950s and 60s. And I remember my publisher, Michael Hayward, uh, saying to me, The period that we know least about is the one immediately before we were born. And I thought, There's a lot of truth in that. I was sort of familiar with the outlines of the story, I knew who'd won. What I knew the years in which uh, games had been played, I knew the great kind of feats of, of cricket in that time, but I didn't really have an understanding of the the characters. I didn't really completely understand the structures of the game, the uh, the the nature of the bilateral relationships. Uh, I had no idea of the personalities of the administrative classes. I had a vague sort of overall sense of Australian history, but my knowledge of it wasn't particularly detailed. Uh, it was a period in which I think cricket was much, perhaps a bit more central to the the predominant culture than it uh, than it was later on. You know, it was Australia at the time was you know, a football country in winter, whatever the code was, and a, and a cricket and a cricket country in 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 summer. So. It was a period that was, it bulked large but, but mysterious, but it was still accessible. You know, it was it was the, the people who had been its its chief personalities were still alive and still compass mentis. And actually, as I found uh, when I approached them, actually otherwise unoccupied, frequently retired, kids grown up, uh, living at home, uh, not particularly well-known, not big personalities, but with time on their hands and and a willingness to share their experiences. So I literally, I, I can remember very vividly having the idea of the book, uh, thinking who I might start off by interviewing. I opened the Melbourne White Pages and I looked up C.C. C. MacDonald, um, who I knew lived in Beaumaris, Colin MacDonald, who, who played for Australia from... Uh, 1953 to 1961, and I rang the number. It was as simple as that. And I said, can I come and talk to you about your career? And he said, sure. So the next day I was literally in his living room. He had some old scrapbooks. Uh, He had a lot of memories, uh, and he was a good storyteller. He was a very interesting man, Colin. He was quite um, – he'd had an interesting and full life, not only a cricketer cricket had merely been a, a part of his of his life he'd been an insurance broker he'd been heavily involved in running tennis in australia he had a big he had a big context he had a big life uh, of which cricket was merely a part but he enjoyed going back into it and from there simply a case of you know who else would be good to talk to i got some telephone numbers from him i just started ringing people i don't think anyone said no to me um uh or with one with one qualification which I'll uh, which which I'll get to. Uh I sort of spent the next year just going around Australia talking to old cricketers. And nothing like talking to old cricketers, they're fascinating, endlessly fascinating. And it was an area that was both very familiar and very strange. Uh quite remote from my experience, but at a certain level, uh Cricket is a cricket is a very easy way to reach people. Uh, if you have cricket in common, you immediately have a a great sort of repertoire of of shared experiences. It's 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 kind of easy to find a, a a good wavelength on which to communicate with with you. And you know they actually played cricket in a way that really rather appealed to me in my kind of sentimental, old-fashioned, purist nature. Um, I found them. Good, sympathetic, uh, intelligent uh, interlocutors, uh, disinclined to talk about themselves, but very interested in talking about others. That was that was another characteristic. These were not particularly egotistical men. Uh, they were good raconteurs, but they were naturally self-effacing. It was a function of the era, a function of, of, of the attitudes. And I think one of the early lessons that I learned was not to tax them directly about their experiences, but to talk, to to lead them into conversations by talking about others. Cricketers love telling stories about each other. Uh, they love reminiscing. They, they love uh, the particular camaraderie and kinship that is, that is formed within, within cricket teams. So even though, you know, they were great names and, that had the great honour of representing their country, they were almost as everyday as a club cricketer who you might encounter at the weekend. They told the same kind of stories. They had the same kind of perspectives. They um, they put others first, and um, and as long as as long as they felt as though their careers were being understood in the
0: context of other people's careers, they were very happy to share. Interesting. Uh, while reading the book, it what struck me was that it was not, there, there was a lot of controversy and there was a lot of uh, fractiousness during yeah. that time,
1: yeah.
0: but how, either because of the passage of time or because of the way cricketers were at the time, it seemed that both parties had reconciled to yeah. how, how things turned yeah. out over time. And this happens on so many occasions through the mm-hmm. book. You find, you know, whether it's, uh, the manner in which Ian McKiff was disorderly, yeah. Yeah. you know, his career was ended or the way in which or Norm O'Neill or so many of these other cricketers who were, who must have gone through a really hard time in their lives, but they, the way they talk about it, it's almost like they've made peace with it.
1: Yes. Them. Yes. Yes. They've made peace with it. Although I must confess that when I went to see Ian McKiff, he did, he did. He was brought to tears by the recollection of the end of his career. It was clearly a very traumatic experience for him and for his family. Uh, he was very frank about it. He was very candid, um, but he clearly bore the bore the scars. I, I, I think I was talking to Ian probably a little bit after um, Murley had been no-balled at the MCG. Um, on that uh, that ghastly occasion, and Ian had been there, yeah. and I know that Ian had to go home um, in the immediate aftermath of that. He found it quite triggering to use a uh, modern parlance.
2: You know, I found, I found that fascinating. One is that even at that time, you know, not even the passage of time, even at that time, you record that in the book, that he made peace with the fact that he could have been a chucker. I mean, he, yeah. he in fact concedes himself. Perhaps I was. Yes. Which is kind of strange because, I mean, like Bradman himself says, Nobody knows. It's just an interpretation. It's just an opinion. And now, especially after Murli, what we know about the degrees and the flexion and so on, uh, you know, it is entirely possible that, that nobody really knew. And for him to make peace with that, I felt like maybe he was not even chucking, but he was forced to make peace with it because people yes. around him thought so, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, never let it be forgotten that these players very seldom saw themselves um, that you could go through your entire career seeing virtually none of your own cricket. I remember talking to Brian Booth about his career, and I said, Brian, did you ever see yourself? He said, I once saw myself on a newsreel. Uh, I faced one ball, and I was bowled. <laughs> that was the only time he'd ever seen himself in the course of his entire career. So he had no, absolutely no idea what he looked like, but he did know what it felt like. And I know that um, he tells a fantastic story of facing Charlie Griffith in the West Indies in 1965, the experience of facing a very, very fast bowler, a life-threatening bowler without a helmet in front of a baying crowd. Uh, He conveyed a very powerful sense of of, of what that was like. It's 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 an eyewitness account. It's a little bit like asking a soldier what it's like to be in the front line.
0: Yeah, I think the quote that he has there is, or oh, maybe it's not him. One of them has it that Charlie Griffith used to bowl two deliveries at 80 uh, miles, and then he yeah. would bowl one at 110, and you had no idea what he was yeah, bowling yeah. from his action. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that he calls that a line from the Bible into his mind at the time, because <laughs> Brian was a, um, was a very uh, devout Christian. Uh, and um, in order to, to get himself through this ordeal, he, um, he summoned a, a
0: line of scripture. Yeah, the, one point about the interviews that I wanted to ask is that uh, you, while reading the book, I mean, you quote all these players and you quote them, you know, and there are chunks of quotes throughout yeah. the book, and then by the end of it, you're like, how long did Gideon talk to these people? It's almost like you spent a week with each of them, and they told you
1: everything they had to say yeah look i mean i I was learning a lot about how to interview people i learned a lot in the course of um of of the cricket war about how you reached a, a cricketer the importance of knowing absolutely everything there was to know about them before you got there or as much as humanly possible so Everything they told you could be fitted into a context. If they gestured towards a particular story, perhaps you could help them finish it. Uh, and, of course, over the course of a book, you accumulate so much material, you accumulate so much firsthand testimony, you get the opportunity to test one man's testimony against another. You can turn up and say, well, so-and-so told me this about this. How did you see it? Or, um, or, And sometimes they saw it completely differently. Sometimes, of course... In the process of coming to a story, they'd already compared impressions. Uh, so they were coming out with a kind of agreed version. What was especially interesting, of course, was finding the players who um, who had never had the opportunity to do that, who had slipped entirely out the side door of the game and been completely forgotten, completely neglected, who had never told their story to anyone, Um Pat Crawford would be the quintessential uh, example of that. Now, Pat played a couple of test matches for Australia in the in the 1950s and then kind of vanished from the game. Uh, I can't even remember how I found him, but he was living um, well outside Sydney. Um, I think it was a place called Miranda, living in a very small, uh, rather jerry-built home, um and living with his de facto and no one had seen him for 40 years when i visited him um but he was very forthcoming he was very friendly um and he told me the the painful story of the uh disillusion of his of his marriage um his wife was pregnant going on the 1956 tour of uh, of of england um he want, that they wanted to go together. Um, they were young and naive, and they didn't realise that that was not possible under the tour contract that, that, that Pat had signed. So when they got to Melbourne from Sydney, the Australian Cricket Board threw her off the boat and put her on another boat that was travelling in, in the first boat's wake. There was a period in the Mediterranean Richie Benner remembered where the two boats caught sight of each other: um, husband on one, wife on the other. Um, and then, when they got to uh, England, she was unable to stay in the team hotel. She was English, so she um, so she stayed uh, with her parents uh, in Manchester. And at the end of the tour, the baby had been born, and she said, "I'm not coming back to Australia with you." So he never saw the child again. Uh, And needless to say, this was an extremely harrowing experience. Uh, Pat's life had kind of gone off the rails. He disappeared from from cricket. Uh, He'd never been reconciled with it. And when I got to the end of the interview, I remember this very vividly. Um, I said, Pat, do you have any mementos of your cricket? Uh, anything by which you remember the game. And he had this tiny little envelope. It wasn't even an average A4 size envelope. It was tiny and it had the word cricket handwritten on it. And it was a handful of paper clippings, um, no particular order to them, a couple from his period in the Lancashire League, one interview with People magazine, a couple of clippings from the Daily Telegraph, and he held them out and he said, here you go, I said, I can't take that, I can't take it, it's all you've got, Uh, so I left it behind, it wasn't terribly informative anyway, but I spent the entire day with him, Um, and as time went on, I remember his his de facto made some tomato sandwiches, and we had a cup of tea, and a lamington, and um, it was just fascinating because the story had never been told. Because I guess there'd never been anyone around to listen to it.
0: I guess he was—you were the first journalist who yeah. spent anything more than five minutes with him.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also mentioned that he could—he wanted to go and play in county cricket. But uh, at that yes. time, the contract meant the, the board contract meant that if you right. play for Australia for the next two years, you can't play. Yes. Uh, county cricket, yes. yes. and and yes. that kind yes. of scuppered as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are very strong strictures that prevented Australian cricketers from becoming full-time professionals. Uh, it, was a, it was a feudal model of the, of the cricket economy in which the Australian Cricket Board made extensive uh, steps to ensure that it was the monopoly employer of Australian cricketers. It would never stand up now. Um, it probably shouldn't have stood up then.
2: Yeah, indeed uh so that that actually brings me to this point which i absolutely loved about the book is that it approaches a particular story from so many angles right like one you're talking about you're not just saying that this was a board but you're also comparing that with the larger economy i mean australia yes. at that time was growing immensely it had very little foreign you know foreign debt it, it was growing the average wage was growing at a faster pace than the cricketers go, uh, wages yes. were growing yeah yep. so in in many ways when you said that in context what what you know rang the bell for me was you know, everything that we have heard from Chapley about why uh, World Series cricket came about. The preconditions were existing from the 50s, you know, post-pagment, the preconditions were existing. It could have actually blossomed any time, but you had to wait for the TV to flourish for you to get the breakthrough. So so all these linear stories that we've heard over years, you have this, I mean, you've always done that even as a journalist, but I didn't know that this was like the case even in some of your earlier work. So I was so thrilled to see the fact that the classic Gideon Haig that we take for granted now of provoking, uh, you know, taking a nonlinear story and provoking multiple angles to it, and not so much to confuse you, but just to offer the complex sort of picture and all its sort of uh, Mm -hmm. dimensions. Um, I mean, there are plenty of examples to quote. I'm just quoting this example to to start with. How did did you see that? Uh, The the preconditions, let's say, for a a Packer to take over was existing for more than 20 years.
1: Well, Mahesh, I'm pleased to have gone from my early period to my classic period. Um, <laughs> I, think I, I think I've always um, understood that, that cricket is a fascinating aperture through which to view Australian society. Uh, when, when people talk about cricket, when people complain about cricket, when people champion cricket, they're often somehow talking about something else, some other feature of the, of the national life. Because for so long, the Australian cricket team has been the chief sporting embodiment of, of the nation. It even, of course, predates the nation by, you know, arising in 1877 before Australia as a, as a nation exists. So it's often a proxy in, uh, in, in larger battles. And we actually shouldn't be afraid of that um it's actually one of the great things about it um that weird disproportionate sense of importance i think cricket can take a lot of pride uh for having for 150 years been such an important vehicle for australian expression um uh determination and uh and and achievement um look uh I think you're probably flattering me a bit um in the sense that i was you know I was only thirty at the time, so and a complete bloody amateur bumbling historian uh now no university education i don't i don't i don't have a um i don't have a undergraduate degree in history or anything like that. I'm just interested in history, I'm just interested in understanding why things are the way they are now, and one of the ways in which you do that is to interrogate. How you got somewhere. So that's all I did. I, you know, I steeped myself in the in the literature and the history of the of the 50s and 60s, the, the popular culture of that period. I tried to see what was happening contemporaneously with um with these cricket tours. Uh I tried to understand the political settings of the country. There is there is actually a, a chapter about the politics. Or the overlap of politics between um, Australia and, uh, and and Australian cricketers, including the polit- the cricketers who became politicians, your Sam Loxton's and your uh, and your Tom Vivers on the conservative and the uh, and and the Labor side. Uh, you know, often these and and the other thing is that in this period. Australian cricket becomes genuinely international for the first time. It had hitherto revolved on very much on an Anglo-Australian axis. But in that period between um, 1963 and, uh, and 1967, you know, we lose for the first time to South Africa. We lose for the first time to the West Indies uh, in those countries. Uh We've begun to tour um, India and Pakistan. Um, we went there actually originally with um, political approval, um, as I as I discuss in the in the in the book through delving into the Menzies papers. Uh, cricket was in some degree an extension of Australia's foreign policy. Uh, so it's a question of Australia. It's it's a period of Australia's awakening to the rest of the world. It's a period in which we actually begin for the first time to look outside the limits of empire. And these cricketers were pioneers in that respect. They were much, much better travelled than the average Australian of the same period. They were much, much more globally aware. It was very, very unusual for an Australian to go to India for any reason other than cricket um so often the experience of going there was uh, was very confronting um uh for for young hollow um often not particularly well educated men they got fascinating impressions of, uh, of of places that were rich and strange in
2: in all manners yeah, and and you did uh, talk about this I mean, in, in a sort of tangential way about how the cricket economics is also changing, the commerce of cricket is also changing, because Australia finished a tour of South Africa, which was probably the greatest surplus that they've had on a tour, even more than the Ashes. Mm. And, and the amount of money that they were able to generate from guarantees, even from an Indian tour, was was substantial, yes. uh, even though like the country itself was poor, but they yes. were willing to pay for the cricket. Mm. And, and i mean those were very early days right you i mean we talk about the 83 world cup now or the subsequent rise of india as the early days of this domination uh, but the commerce was sweeping the creating commerce landscape was sweeping even then
1: yes yes that's true although it's interesting that 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 the Australian Board of Control, as it was in those days, was really just a clearinghouse for those funds. It had no freestanding existence on its own. It was not an organisation in its own right. It was a organiser, a collector and a distributor of those funds. It was not an organisation in and of itself. I mean, the, the secretary of the Australian Board of Control was one of the state secretaries on a rotation basis, there were no full-time employees of, uh, of of the Australian Board. It was simply something that one of the state secretaries did in addition to their responsibilities. So, you know, people like um, Bill Jeans, um, Jack Ledwood, uh, Alan Barnes were were simultaneously officers of their own states, and usually the one-paid employee of the state who did the Australian business in addition to that. It was still very much an honorary cricket administration um, run on a pretty genteel grace and and favour basis that looked upon itself um, in in, um, a suitable light. Uh, They were amateurs, so they kind of expected the players to play in a sort of a a semi-amateur fashion, um, even though they might aspire
0: to professional standards. One of the things that struck me about the book a lot, I read this book, actually, uh, I read the first edition of the book, uh, mm-hmm. I uh, and I read it in 2003, I think this was around the time when India were touring Australia yeah. for that famous series, Steve Waugh's final series. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, following Australian cricket through the 90s and through the Steve Waugh period, if we may call it that, uh, you get used to all these terms being thrown at you about you know, mental disintegration, Australianism, the baggy green, the play hard but fair, and all these cliches. And I was reading this book in 2003 and thinking, there's such a different Australia and Australian cricket and Australian cricket culture that has gone around. And why are we putting all this into like a monoculture of Australian cricket? And, yeah, I mean, talk a bit about that and how different cricket actually was back then. Well, it is fascinating, isn't it, that the the, the baggy green was not a cult object
1: nope. in this period. Um, <laughs> players routinely played in sun hats, um, uh, bareheaded, you know, Neil Harvey, Keith Miller, Richie Benno. They were never seen in Australian caps. They liked playing um, without uh, that. They didn't think that kind of accoutrement was was necessary to express their patriotic leanings um Ian Chappell of course famously doesn't have any of his Australian caps he gave them all away he calls it a $10 piece of felt uh it didn't need that kind of uh totemic expression there was a strong sense of a, of an of an Australian kind of way of cricket um Fast bowling was important, wrist spin bowling was important, good fielding was important, uh, a degree of athleticism was, uh, was important. And, and of course, Australian cricket so often defined itself in contradistinction to English cricket. Now, we're everything that they're not. English players are very orthodox, they're very coached. We allow the scope for spontaneous talent, freedom of expression. Uh, we're tough, resilient, fight um, tooth and nail. The English are good front runners. They're a bit punsy, a bit effete. Um, they're, they're false distinctions, but they're things that um, that over time have given us a certain kind of uh, sense of superiority or, or a sense of self confidence uh, when when we take the field. But of course, um, it was also the case that when you were touring England in the nineteen fifties and sixties, uh, you were making a pilgrimage to the seat of Australian culture, the centre of Australian culture. We were a very, very derivative culture at the time. There was a great deal of enthusiasm among Australian cricketers for going to see, you know, the Tower of London or Big Ben or uh, an English stately home or Jodrell Bank Observatory or, um, uh, you know, there was a willingness to attend... Seemingly long interminable dinners with with lots of speeches. There's that fascinating bit in the book where um, Bob Simpson, who's about to captain Australia on the 64 tour, writes to Robert Menzies, the prime minister, asking him for advice about how he should speak to English people how he should speak to how he should carry out the ceremonial functions of office because he regarded himself not only as Australian captain but also a kind of an ambassador of the culture and Nenses gives him a very interesting considered and quite patriotic reply it's almost impossible to imagine an Australian cricketer even 15 years later thinking along the same lines but this is the way it was. And it was fascinating to be given access to uh, t- to that culture.
2: Talking of Robert Menzies, I, I, I found it fascinating that, I know, this book could have had an alternative title, right? Robert Menzies and, and his cricket or whatever. You know, mm. like he was yeah. there right throughout, you know. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. instead of Keith Miller or Richie Bunn, we could have had Menzies on the cover. He was pretty much, the, the spirit of him was there throughout. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, perhaps I, I have no idea of, let's say, the, the importance of cricket to the Australian society at that time. You know, someone like John Howard was... Who, although he called it himself famously as, as a cricket tragic, but yes. you know, the Menzi seems like to the power 10. You know, uh, so tell us a little bit about how much of it was a natural sort of organic love mm. for cricket, and how much of it was also somewhat using the cricket stage for his sort of politics and so on.
0: Yeah, and also like, tell us a bit about the cover itself because that does have a Menzies connection,
1: yes, it does, it does, it does. Um, that particular uh photograph is, is one of Keith Miller playing a square cut, uh, playing for New South Wales versus MCC, Sydney, 1950-51, taken by a photographer called uh, Ross Freeman, and it was on Menzies' Wall. Uh, in his uh, office in Canberra, uh, that and a um, and a painting by Roberts of a, uh, of an Australian bush scene, and in some respects, I guess they kind of reflected two sides of Australian culture that appealed very strongly to to a politician of of, um, of Menzies' uh, conservative leanings. For, for those who don't know. Uh, Menzies was Australia's longest serving prime minister from 1949 to 1966 so he's prime minister through a lot of the period in which I'm discussing he loved cricket he'd lifetime's fascination and absorption in cricket culture and uh, and literature he loved the way in which it expressed the bond between um, Australia and the UK he was in the um Vernacular of the time, an independent Australian Briton um, who who enjoyed the uh, the status not only of being an Australian but also um, the connection to a a, a long uh, extant uh, British culture, um, and I had a, a few, some years some years before I did the. the the, uh, the summer game, I'd, I'd been doing some research at the National Library and I was having a look at some of Menzies' papers and just by, um, because I had an afternoon spare, I looked at the the study guide for them and there was a, there was a couple of boxes called cricket. I thought, well, got to have a look at that. Um, so it was full of really, really fascinating letters. Uh, lots of people wrote to Menzies about cricket. Menzies Um, wrote to lots of people. Um, A lot of people, uh, whenever he went to England, he always did so around about the time of the Lord's Test Match, he would often have a dinner over there where he invited uh, prestigious cricketers of the period. Um, He loved the the society of cricketers because I think um, they were not innately deferential. Their, their sort of informality and uh, and companionability appealed to uh, to, to Menzi's um, social uh, inclinations, and he was not above uh, uh, the thing that really appealed to me when I when I looked at it for the first time was that um, he had written on one side of paper, some notes for a speech about the death of a Governor-General, which he was to give in Parliament. And on the other side of the piece of paper, he had written out the averages for the, I think, the 1962-3 first-class season. (laughs) He was obviously in the process of choosing his Prime Minister's 11. Um, I thought, this is a man that I could learn to like. So uh, when I went back to do um to do the summer game, I, I understood that he was a pretty important figure, both in terms of his cricket enthusiasm and his continuity. You know, he he his um his prime ministership was was definitional of the of the age. And I found um he had, had a considerable influence on the places that Australia toured. Uh, Means is although he's very very strongly identified with the the Anglo-Australian consensus, uh, he had been fundamental to Australia's first tour of the West Indies in '55 because I think it coincided with the 300th anniversary of British settlement in Jamaica, which he discussed with uh, the Jamaican Governor Sir Hugh Foote, at a at a, at a Commonwealth conference uh, and. Uh, Foot had said it would be good if the Australian cricket team toured, it would conduce to the prestige of the white man. So uh, Menzies said to the Australian board, you know, have you ever considered a tour of the West Indies? I don't think the Australian board of control had to that point, but they said absolutely in a heartbeat. So they sent a team there in 55 and it was a fantastic tour. Uh in 56, he was pretty fundamental to Australia playing in India and Pakistan uh, on the way back from England because I think at the time it was feared that um, the subcontinent was increasingly coming under the influence of the, of the Soviet bloc and that uh, it would be good to plant um, a, a Commonwealth flag there. Um, he was even important to Australia playing in the Netherlands in 1953, which they did as a, as a detour from that, uh, from that tour of England because... England and the Netherlands, Australia and the Netherlands had been at odds over the status of Indonesia in the immediate post-war period and it wouldn't be a bad idea for a little bit of cricket bat diplomacy. So, you know, he was sensitive to the cultural and political significances of a cricket tour. Uh, he also played an important role, uh, backstage role, in uh, ensuring that Australia maintained its cricket links with South Africa, perhaps beyond the point where it really should have, uh, so the sixty-six-seven to went ahead on the other, on the understanding that the apartheid regime in South Africa would turn a blind eye to the dark skin of, of Graham Thomas, for instance. Uh, some some unappealing concessions made there, but you know, in those days, um, Australia did not have many vehicles. Uh, in which to express itself abroad. Uh, It was known as a manufacturer of or producer of commodities, you know, wool and wheat. We were the country that famously had more sheep than people. What else did people know about Australia? Well, they knew the cricket team. If they were in those parts of the world where where cricket was a significant uh, cultural phenomenon and this was a way in which cricket in which australia a country otherwise very isolated geographically and defined by its relationship to uh, to, to britain was able to carve itself a kind of an independent image and niche
2: in fact, till I read this book, I didn't know that the uh, the lucky country tag, which we use very often in our industry, hmm. because Australia has not seen a recession for thirty years before the COVID and so on, right? And it's been stuck to it for a long time. I didn't know that it was used ironically by the author. Yes, yeah, Donald Horn, yeah, yeah, and it it's still
1: frequently misused. It's probably as frequently misinterpreted as Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Yeah, I was still. I read the book, so <laughs> equally, I've got to plead guilty here. It's a good book. It's a very good book, actually, and it still stands up um, as a critique of Australian kind of banality and, uh, and apathy. I think it uh, it still resonates. Um, yeah, it's
2: a it's a it's a fascinating book, and he was a fascinating man. Interesting. Sorry, just to harp on this point about the South African thing, even before the uh, the apartheid, or before South Africa was uh, kicked out of the the ICC at that time, was it, yeah. what, is it? Yeah. what is it called, In, what cricket conference, is Imperial. Imperial Cricket Conference, even before that, when Australian teams are taught, one of the remarkable things that I've noticed is that every time Australian teams taught South Africa or India, they had this sense of the fact that this, there's something wrong with the society, right, they're, they're feeling sorry for people who are suppressed mm. and repressed and so on, Yeah. and oftentimes, it, to me, so, so the question to you is, were those people completely oblivious to what was happening at home? For instance, Australia still had the, the Australia for whites policy, right? Yes. You, could, yes. you couldn't become an Australian citizen if you're not white. Or the fact that their track record of treating the aborigines at that time was not great. Was it because a lot of this was not happening in, let's say, in the places that these cricketers are coming from? Like, for instance, if you went to Darwin, it's quite obvious. But if you go to Sydney, it's not that obvious. Yeah. Is yeah. that the case or is there more to it?
1: I guess I mean, look, cricket. You're right. Is a metropolitan game in Australia for all the for all the mythology around um, you know heroes from the uh, from the outback. Uh, it's a game that's centered on cities, and cities uh, in Australia in the 1950s and 60s were were pretty monochromatic, um, and of course, uh, you know, and news was local. And, and a sense of the nation was sometimes hard to get. You know, Australia's a huge country characterised by vast distances uh, and is is pretty parochial, frankly, and and a little bit inclined to indifference where the, where the rest of the world is concerned. But it was difficult for the cricketers to look the other way, to be oblivious to the way in which other countries operated. I know that um, the Australians who toured South Africa in 57-8 Came away with a very strange sense of um of uh um, the way in which the black population uh was was kept at arm's length by, by the rest of cricket. There's that fascinating interlude in 66-7 where um uh, Simo recalled Peter von der Merwe uh, giving his um, speech at the end of the tour in Afrikaans. In
0: Afrikaans. In yeah,
1: Afrikaans. yeah, and not really understanding what the significance of that, but knowing that it wasn't particularly hospitable, <laughs> if if you know what I mean. Um, I know Tom Vavas. Wasn't
0: that the same tour where uh, three or four Australians were went to watch? Two coloured teams playing cricket. That was in but 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 in but in '66, seven. Tom Vivers
1: comes back from uh, from that tour feeling very very disquieted about racial prejudice in South Africa, and he of course does eventually go into the Labour side of politics, and he's a strong campaigner for the uh, Australia discontinuing its uh, its sporting links with South Africa. I mean, the interesting thing about um Australia's relations with South Africa is that it's not a case of South Africa being thrown out of the ICC. South Africa eliminates itself from the ICC by becoming independent, by becoming a republic in in um, in 1960, uh, and therefore, by definition, leaving the imperial setup. Um, it's only a, it's only England and Australia who continue playing against them because. Well, basically, for the sake of continuity, basically for the sake of of, of tradition, uh, there's a strong argument. Actually, that those test matches that uh, that South Africa played in the 1960s were not official games at all. Um, but I, I, I won't go down that that path. But um, but it, they were really bilaterally concluded. They were not incorporated in the. Uh, they were not organised under the auspices of the of the ICC.
0: And, and just to uh, carry on this point, uh, there's this remarkable passage that uh, you write after talking about that famous 6061 West mm-hmm. Indies series in Australia, and of course, there's this great uh, descriptions of the mm-hmm. Test matches and everything, and what a great series it was, the tight test, Gary Sobers, and all that happened. But then, how that tour actually played a big part in the elimination of the the policy. The the discriminatory policy that Australia had because of the lobbying that happened after that, right? Can... Well, I mean the um, I mean the white Australia policy still had a few legs at
1: that time. It's not like it changed overnight, but it was certainly um, uh, the the fact that um, that Caribbean cricketers were able to uh, to mingle so freely and uh, and achieve such popularity in Australia was hugely significant from the point of view of both Australia and the West Indies. Because, of course, in um, CLR James' Beyond the Boundary, he talks about the... Uh the huge symbolism of frank Worrell being the uh, the, the captain for the first time a, a, a man of color captaining a, a west indies team on tour it was played under the auspices of the west indies federation they flew the west indies federation uh flag uh throughout the tour that 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 short-lived experiment in uh, in in caribbean unity um it does have huge significances beyond the boundary um, for for both countries. Um, The the disappointing thing, perhaps, about, about that tour is that, of course, it takes another eight years for the West Indies to come again. Seems almost inconceivable, doesn't it, that a tour could be that successful and that you would have to wait so long for the team to come back. But that was also how kind of... Rigid and and um, and uh, backward-looking, Australian cricket was at the time that everything kind of had to follow uh, the pattern of the of the of the seasons. Here was a huge opportunity, actually, that Australian cricket failed to take advantage of.
2: Yeah, and it was not even like the Ashes were like box office success at that time. They were not making money. Well, um, no, the, the Ashes were the Ashes endured. Um,
1: were, were still extremely lucrative. But they just weren't very interesting. <laughs> There's a problem with them. Ah, okay, okay, fair enough. Right. People turned up obediently to watch a succession of very, very
2: tedious test matches. Uh, you know, one yeah. of the uh, um, famous theories about that was Bradman asking Benno and Worrell to kind of make it a series to remember, to play Brighter Cricket as the tagline went then. Yeah. And uh, and coming into the Brighter Cricket, again, the classic sort of uh, Gideon thing, that you take a linear story, you're saying, okay, the cricket was boring after Bradman, you know, there was no life. People stopped stopped turning up for cricket and even like people on radio were not listening as much and so on. That's because cricketers were not playing attractive cricket as if all the blame were laid at at their feet. And then you cover cover the other angles, you know, the the social changes happening in the society, how tennis was getting prominent, squash courts were getting established, motorsports was becoming popular. Uh, And it was quite convenient to lay the blame on on the cricketers. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you know, I had taken this narrative too hard. I just thought this series changed everything and before that, all cricketers were boring and so on. So it was quite uh, quite relieving for me to read that. But also, more importantly, I was worried. You know, I was I approached the chapter with a lot of anxiety because I didn't want you to break the myth about the 60 series. series. Like, please don't do it. Do not yeah. tell me tight test had some other context and it was not just because the cricketers were thrilling. I am so glad you didn't puncture any, anything about that series. It's a, it's, it a great,
1: it's a great series. It's a fantastic series.
2: And... Um... The
1: wonderful thing about that series is that uh, you know it's one of those ones that leaves a legacy of um, terrific uh, re- really good film, really good footage, and really good uh, recorded radio commentary, which really brings uh, that series alive. Uh, I can remember when I was writing the um the account of the Tide Test. I was listening over and over again to the recording of the commentators going through that last over and the sense of uh, exhilaration and disbelief in their in their voices. It, uh, it, it spans the generations. You, you genuinely can feel like you were there. And then, of course, to speak to the players who were involved was captivating as well they knew full well that they'd been part of history
0: and they were still kind of hugging themselves in disbelief 35 years later and in that series i mean the tight test of course is the jewel in the crown if we may call it so but almost every test was so like engrossing like it went till the last ball they were tests like the very last test went Mm. till the last ball and the series could have just been the reverse the result could have been reversed if not yeah 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 Yeah.
1: and of course 90,800 people turn up to uh to to the Melbourne test match of, of 61 which is a record that stood um until you know the quite recently in the in the last 10 years uh and you get a sense of you get a sense, particularly being in Melbourne, of a city that was absolutely captivated by by these visitors, um, and the ticket tape parade that takes place afterwards, where the uh, quite spontaneously the um, the West Indies cricketers are paraded through the uh, through the the, the the heart of Melbourne. There's never been an equivalent before or since. I don't think any cricket touring team has ever been quite as popular. I mean, teams have been successful here, but they've never enjoyed such a spontaneous degree of public support and enthusiasm to the degree to which I'm not sure that many Australians would have been mourned had they lost that series. It's a strange thing to say in Australia, where we set so much store by victory.
2: Talking that series, I just want him to narrate this anecdote about uh, Megilvary miss, missing the tie test because <laughs> he thought he was going to finish. What a classic story. I just loved it. It's pretty
1: extraordinary, isn't
2: it? I'm not sure a commentator now would, uh,
1: would get away with it. He was lucky that he did it with Keith Miller. He flew back to, uh, to, to Sydney from Brisbane at lunch on the last day, assuming the Test match would be a draw. Now, I guess if you'd probably watched cricket over the previous 10 years, you'd, be, you'd become accustomed to a succession of kind of anti-climaxes um your your expectations of cricket were were not that high but i love the fact that they arrive at sydney airport and they hear that the test match has been tied and it's just not part of their vocabulary what's a tie they think oh it must be they must mean a draw but gradually it dawns on them that they've missed perhaps still the greatest test match of all time um yeah, never leave a test match early. Oh,
2: and, unlike, and unlike the Melbourne test where 90,000 people attended, this I think this had like 3,000 people or something, so you could have been one of the chosen few. Yeah, so
0: yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I, no, I was uh, more surprised that Keith Miller left, actually, given his instinct for the game and everything. I thought he would have stayed.
1: <laughs> I think he took a pretty... Um, he took a pretty laissez-faire view of his media responsibilities, Keith. I do love that story that's told on the is it the sixty nine, seven the seventy-two of South Africa, where um he absolutely lambasted the Australians for the way they'd played in a game against I think it was Western Province or something like that. And is it Paul Sheen and Keith Stackpole? Knew that he hadn't been there. <laughs> been at yeah, the races. No. And uh, and they confronted him about this. And Miller replies, Oh, you boys don't take any notice of that stuff, do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: what's there to say about that?
1: Yeah,
0: you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Talking about the tight test of that series, though, uh, need to bring in. Uh, another hero of the book, who I mean, again, there are so many heroes in the book, but yeah, I mean, Richie Benno casts such a, you know, is such an integral part of that book, and yes. there are so many aspects of Richie Benno that you know, I've some, I've been someone who's is, has seen Richie Benno on commentary for so mm. many years, right? Who had seen for so many years and had read about Benno and everything, but then there is this one little anecdote that you mentioned, which I just had to read again and again. It's like that moment where. Uh, Richie Benno apparently was seen as someone who was over appealing Mm, uh, compared to his predecessors and Richie Benno is someone in my head who is like you know so much you know known for his restraint and economy and everything and he was accused of over appealing so imagine what came before him.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, he's quite a. But if you look at pictures of Richie, you know, he's quite a virile specimen. Um, you know, he's got the, the 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 shirt unbuttoned as as far as um, as, as taste would require. He's uh, um, yeah, his appealing was notoriously unbridled. Um, the wicket taking celebrations of that Australian team in the fifties and sixties were quite heavily criticised. Um, interestingly, when I Contacted Richie about doing this book because, of course, he's such an important character in that period. Um, Richie had declined to be interviewed for the Cricket War, and he declined to be interviewed for the Summer Game. But he wrote to me and he said, "I am prepared to accept written questions on the uh, on the subject." So I thought, "Okay, all right. I'll call you bluff, Richie. I'll send you seven pages of questions," and he <laughs> proceeded to send me back my... 12 pages of answers and um all carefully typewritten, um, probably by Daphne. I uh, then sent him a few more questions and he continued to reply. He liked to control his interactions with with people. I think control was was very fundamental to, uh, to to Richie's personality. He liked he liked to have things written down, he liked to have things uh on um on record, he liked to have a permanent record of them. In the end, although I spoke to Richie quite a lot over the years informally. I only ever interviewed him formally once in 2005 when he retired from, uh, from free to air television in the UK. And then because he had a, had a book out and it was, he was a very reticent interviewee, uh, thought very carefully before he replied to anything and, was quite guarded and always interlarded lots of qualifications in 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 what he said um which is interesting because you know of course as as you say he was a he, he was a figure on the field who was um you know quite effusive quite ebullient, uh quite charismatic and th- there is a, there is a telling quote i think from bob simpson uh where he says that he thought that richie had Gave thought to everything he did from the moment that he got up till the moment that he went to bed. It, it, there was not a single unplanned moment of Richie Benno's life, so he even planned his spontaneity. Um, ah. so I, mean, I don't know whether that's that's a that's a faithful impression, but it's certainly the impression that I got from from reviewing his career and from from interacting with him over the years.
2: I, I found most fascinating that uh, pretty much all the cricket world. Takes Richie to be this least controversial cricket figure. I mean, if you take Bradman, like Chapley right. doesn't like him. Even Chapley doesn't like him. If you take Chapel, there are other people who don't like him, right? Yeah. But with Benno Benno seems to have extreme reverence for Bradman. Chapley yes. seems to have extreme reverence for Benno, even though Benno re- revered Bradman. Yes. And Shane Warne got along famously well with uh, Richie. Yes, yes. yes. and yes. Richie breaks all the myths, right? Like, and and he was not even like like uh, such a congenial figure. I mean. He was quite provocative, right? He had a a tiff with the manager where he goes to the press conference and he He took his camera and and filmed Charlie Griffith to establish that he was a chaka. So he's been a rabble rouser himself, but somehow he's come out clean. And he always had the perfect things to say at the perfect moment.
1: He did, didn't he? I mean, he was. um, I mean, his 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 writing is. is quite methodical. he is an interesting prose writer. Richie, I mean, he's not often read. He's he's often interpreted simply as a broadcaster. But his book, "Tale of Two Tests," about um, the Tide Test and about the Old Trafford Test of 1961, is a terrific book. Like, it's probably as good a book as it has ever been written by a captain from the inside. Of a, of a test match. He gives you a fantastic impression of the various things on his mind as that um, as those two great test matches are, are unfolding. And the personalities whom he had to manage and the resources that he had to deploy and the tactical shifts, the fluctuations um, within the game. Um, I think sometimes we're inclined to just, because his reputation as broadcaster casts such a long shadow, we forget um, the contributions that he made to the game in, uh, in in other respects.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's that quote. Uh, in fact, uh, Mahesh shared this uh, with me when we were talking about the podcast mm-hmm. and where you mentioned how after the war, people who fought in the war tended to stick together and people yes. who didn't fight in the war were then... And Alan Davidson says that you never questioned it. And yes. then Richie Beno says, it never worried me that those who had been in the war tended to stick together. Nor did it surprise me in the slightest. They were lucky to be alive, and had been with all the others responsible for the rest of us being free. Yes, and I'm and I'm thinking of this and like
2: what Richie Beno is so is saying such great things even like while mm-hmm.
0: giving well, like I mean, an while mean, he was a junior, right?
2: while he was being you know not treated well by the seniors in the team, he was a junior. He had every reason yes. to complain. Yes, you know this quote could have come from Richie forty years later, but the skin there had yes. that plan.
1: Yes, he, he was precociously mature, wasn't he? I mean, he. Um, but I guess it was a more deferential society. It was a society that was much, much closer to war, and um, you know, the the, the ex serviceman cricketer persisted in Australian cricket for twenty years after the war. So I think Wally Grout was 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 the last of them. Um, there was a pretty strong sense of connectedness to. Um, uh, you know, martial traditions and uh, and, a, and a spirit of of, of self sacrifice. Uh, you know, Australia had fought two hugely costly world wars within four decades. That's not something that a that a that a country recovers from without a glance over its shoulder.
2: Yeah, the other the other hero of this book is also the early captain, right? Lindsay has for instance, that you talked quite extensively at the beginning. Yeah. it seems like Australia was extremely fortunate to have these not just great cricketers, not just great tactical captains, but also like statesmanly sort of subjects. Yeah. Yeah. And which brings me to another related question that, you know, especially post-chapel, we've always had this view that England picks its captain first and the rest of the 10 yes. people later, whereas yes. Australia picks its best level and picks the captain later. But that doesn't seem to have been the case all along. I mean, Ian Craig was a classic example and, and, and Johnson and later. And so the yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. We did um, we did flirt with uh, with with that model? Um, you know, a, a, a corollary of the idea that an Australian cricketer is an ambassador for the country is that there is a kind of a character test for that for that captain to pass. And you know, there was a lot of self torturing in the in the mid nineteen fifties about whether Keith Miller would make an appropriate captain for Australia. He was captain of New South Wales, hugely successful, widely admired. Richie Benno thought that Miller was the best captain that he ever played under. He seemed to have uncanny intuition, seemed to have cricket in his bones. Uh, He had an ability to inspire confidence. He had an enormous capacity to lead by example. And yet, uh, through that period, Australian cricket, whenever it had the opportunity, um, was was reluctant to throw in its lot with him for, for all sorts of for all sorts of reasons, but perhaps reasons that you know are not unassociated with the same reasons that Shane Warne never captained Australia. You were never quite sure of what headline you might wake up to the next day, and if cricket in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands was pretty shockable then cricket of the 1950s was extraordinarily prim. Uh, so even if I think um, Miller was probably um, a little his personal life was perhaps a little bit less rackety than um, than Shane warns uh, it was a, a game that was was loath to to run risks. I guess the other thing too is that the relationship between New South Wales and the other states, was not particularly trusting at the time. Uh, an echo of present day discontents in some ways. You know, New South Wales has always been looked upon with um, with some jealousy and and some misgivings by the uh, by the other states. But there was that period in the 1950s where the other states ensured that New South Wales did not have a selector. Uh, and there was a period where New South Wales actually weirdly discussed secession from the rest of Australia <laughs> with Victoria um, because they were so irritated by the apparently parasitic relationship that Queensland and South Australia had with the rest of the game. I mean, it's hard to believe that such an idea was sustainable, but that was the degree of the, uh, of, of the animus. <laughs> it's
0: funny. <laughs> talking, talking about the, uh, you know, uh, heroes of the book, uh, Neil Harvey, Again, over the years, has become this bit of a caricature, especially with his interviews, and uh, has this certain image that has been formed of him of, you know, talking about his time and his era and not recognizing that the modern cricketers were any of that. But in the book, Neil Harvey comes across as such a wonderful, yeah. wonderful, wonderful gentleman. He was talking about and such a great cricketer, perhaps the greatest cricketer yes. of that whole period, uh, perhaps I say. Uh, but uh, what was it like to talk to? him and to uh, relive his uh, and to jog his memory
1: yeah look i mean the a huge test of a cricketer is how other cricketers talk about them and no cricketer is quite so revered with the possible exception of miller as harvey you know harvey is the cricketer's cricketer as far as the players who played with him are concerned um you know he had everything um brilliant stroke maker, wonderful fielder, brilliant tactical brain, uh, totally selfless, um, uh, always aggressive in, in everything he did. Uh, you know, the characteristic gesture of uh, Neil Harvey is 57.8 tour of South Africa. Ian Craig, his, his form is under pressure. Um, he wants to leave himself out of the Australian team um, as as captain, which would make Neil Harvey as as vice captain his successor. Uh the third selector on the tour is Peter Burge. In those days, the weird sort of sectarian tradition in Australian cricket was that you had to have uh one selector from each state. You couldn't have two selectors from the same state because the assumption was that the two selectors would gather up, would, would, um, would gang up on the on the other one. Uh, Peter Burge wasn't actually even in the test team on that on that tour, but he was made the third selector because he was from Queensland. And um, Craig tells um, uh, Harvey and Burge that he doesn't want to play. Um, Harvey takes Burge for a walk and says, "No Australian captain has ever stood down from his team on tour, and as far as I'm concerned, this is not going to be the first time that happens." So they go back to reconvene the meeting and Burge and Harvey outvote Craig back into his own side. Uh, you know, a Typical act of selflessness, Harvey at that stage had not captained Australia and looked like he might not ever get the opportunity. Um, then of course Harvey doesn't get the opportunity in 1958 when when Craig is unable to captain Australia because of his hepatitis. Harvey is arguably the front runner, but because he's moved from Victoria to New South Wales, uh, he's lost the captaincy of his state. Uh, and Benno gets the inside running, and it's Benno who has to ring Harvey and say, "Guess who the new captain of Australia is?" Harvey says. It's you, uh, and immediately says, "Richie, I'm right behind you. Whatever you do, doesn't think twice about it." Um, once again, thoroughly characteristic gesture of uh, of Harvey's. And as far as I mean, in a sense, Harvey's attitude is consistent. Uh, you talk about him become a, a kind of a, a caricature, but it expressed the philosophy of the team always being bigger than individual players. Uh, He he was always the one who was saying that certain players um, were getting too old uh, and they had to move on for the sake of the team. Um, It wasn't out of a sort of a petty animus. Uh, It was about a genuine belief that um, what counted for the team was was, was more important than than an individual's self-betterment. That's why Harvey eventually votes against Bill Laurie as captain in 1971. Not that he didn't admire uh, Bill, not that he didn't think that he was a great cricketer, but he just felt that it was time for a change and that Ian Chappell would make the better captain, uh, that Ian Chappell was the future of Australian cricket. And amazingly, Harvey managed to persuade his co-selector, Sam Loxton, over and above the objections of uh, of, of Donald Bradman, that that, um, that that should happen. And Australian cricket, frankly, was the better for it. Um, later, Harvey was pretty critical of uh, of Alan Border for playing on too long. There is actually a case that he was right, um even if he didn't always express it all that diplomatically. <laughs> Harvey was yeah you know, Harvey belongs to that tradition of Australians who just call it as they see it. Um He wasn't doing it from a position of um of uh, uh, a media pulpit. Um, he was rung up. He was asked his opinion. And he gave it. Now, I kind of admire people like that. I've always admired that about Ian Chappell. About Ian Ch- Chappell, you know, asking his his opinion on anything, he will give it. And if he doesn't want you to know, he won't tell you. That's,
0: That's a true. famous quote from the cricket war, isn't it, when he told you
1: yeah. that? I won't, I
2: won't tell you. I won't, <laughs> you. <laughs> I won't fucking tell you. Yeah. <laughs> So, talking of Harvey, the, one of the anecdotes in the book that I found absolutely endearing was him talking about uh, his uh, his horrid test in, was it Oval or Old Trafford? I'm not sure. Against Jim Lank, uh, Jim Laker, where he got out the to 19 a, wickets,
0: low, Old Trafford. Uh, yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, he got out to like a low score in both the innings. Second yeah. he got, gets out to a rubbish ball, to a rubbish shot. Yeah, yeah. But when he's talking about the first innings dismissal. He says it was not too dissimilar to what one took to getting. And he said it as yeah. a matter of fact, right? Yeah. That's yeah. him saying that this ball of the century happened in every era. That's one thing. And he said this as a matter of fact. He's not even trying to prove a point. Where did he say that to you in your interview?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, let's face it, that it is a sort of the mirror image of the um, of the ball of the century, isn't it? The, the off-spinner to the to the left hander that pitches leg and hits the top of off. I mean, it's a great ball. You do watch it and you think that's a great ball. And then of course. He hits a full toss straight to, a, straight to short mid-wicket, isn't he, in, uh, in the second innings and gets a pair. Uh, that's cricket. I, I think kind of Harvey did sort of relish that about cricket, that you are cock of the roost one day and, and feather duster the next. Um, I really enjoyed spending time with, with Harvey. Uh, I went out to his house in St Ives and, um, you know, he still had the bat with which he'd scored um, that Century in his first test against England, the the the, the Sykes bat, which with, with which he got the 112. Um, I interviewed him a few years ago, uh, Neil, when he turned 90. He's still exactly the same man, um, and it is pretty extraordinary that um, you know his his memory is so sharp and so clear, and that he provides us with this direct link to cricket in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. He's an absolute national treasure, as far as I'm concerned, Harvey. The fact that he's never been invited to present a baggy green to an Australian cricketer just strikes me as bizarre.
0: Um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a living legend. And, and in terms of the batting itself, I mean, uh, from what I read from you and from what I generally gather, It seems that he was a really beautiful batsman to watch as well and not just one of those, uh, you know, no disrespect to Alan Border, but I'm saying not like a Border kind of batsman, but more in the more stylish left-hander mode.
1: Well, he's very small, Harvey. You know, he's actually quite a short man and he was a quick man. He was one of those cricketers who was brought up to use their feet to spin. Uh, In those days, of course, spin was slower through the air. Um, and it, it encouraged the batsman to, uh, to to come down the wicket, and Harvey was always one who was prepared to uh, to take that challenge, and he was also an outstanding fielder, probably the best all-round fielder of his period, both at at cover and at slip, and just a natural all-round ball player. The other, I think, you know, fascinating thing about him is that you know he comes from this family of six brothers. Uh, who grew up in sort of working-class poverty in the back streets of of Fitzroy, um, who continued sharing a bedroom with his brothers after he was a test cricketer. Uh, But that was the nature of it. You know, um, cricket did not make Neil Harvey rich, uh, but it made him rich in memory and and rich in heritage.
0: In fact, he even went on a TV interview and said that he yeah. didn't have a job
1: no a job yeah 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 but in those days you know um in the end it was the game was always bigger than the players uh it, it genuinely was it was just that was just economically it was bigger than the players it wasn't simply a case of of ego uh, it was the game abided and the players came and went uh That's why, you know, in the end, the book is called The Summer Game. It's it's not about any individuals. It's not about a a constellation of stars. It's about the repetition of summers, the unfolding pageant of summer, which I think is still sort of bred in the Australian bone. Uh, Around about October, after the footy finals finish, everyone kind of shifts their attention to cricket. What is happening this cricket summer? Um, everyone, I think it's still the case that people still tune in to the ABC to listen to the cricket um, when, when it rolls around. Everyone's interested in what's happening on Boxing Day. Everything's. Everyone's interested in what's happening in Sydney. Um, the game is not the same, but certain there is a certain sort of race memory about cricket that probably was formed in this time that is fundamental to Australians continuing perception
2: of the game one question on this you start the book about how this era started post bradman you know after the high of the bradman it was almost like starting from scratch because you're not going to match those highs again yes and and the early tours were not particularly commercially successful i mean they were not getting enough people at the gates and they were not making enough money and it was it even looked like it was possible that some of the test tours were not affordable right were not sustainable and Mm -hmm. if you had three or four summers of no cricket Yes. Who knows how cricket would have turned out from there on, you know. Uh, it's, it's a miracle that actually after the World War, cricket pretty much took off from where it left. I mean, of course, the Bradburn bubble was burst, yes. but yes. the rest of them took off from where it, uh, where it left, which, uh, which we should not take for granted.
1: Well, of course, cricket didn't run with a profit motive. The profit maximisation was not fundamental to, to administration. It ran a little bit like uh, an outsized version of your everyday cricket club. And the 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 important the the way in which a cricket club operates is that it collects enough dues from its members to survive for the following season, uh, with maybe a little bit in reserve uh, to continue to provide that kind of amenity. And in the end, uh, Australian cricket administrators were drawn from the ranks of club cricket. Now, it was a it was a participatory democracy. You got voted onto your state executive as a as a um, as a delegate from your club, and a representative of your state association was sent onto the board. So there was a there's actually a very strong relationship between the grassroots of the game and the and the apex of the game, but also as a result, a kind of a lack of imagination. Uh, um. Uh. A limit to um, a, a, a naturally occurring limit to the game's possibilities for expansion. There was no compulsion to innovate at all. Now, you didn't. You didn't. You never thought of developing an alternative form of the game. Uh, you never thought of the possibility of providing uh, cricketers with financial support outside of match fees. Uh, you didn't think in terms of uh, providing facilities to um, to to bring about higher standards of professionalism. Um, you know, the players were invited to play for Australia. That's what it was called. You, you didn't sign a contract. You received a letter of invitation to represent your country, and it was not an invitation lightly refused because there was no other way to play cricket at the top level.
0: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of that uh, lovely, lovely little anecdote that Lindsay Klein tells you about where he wanted time off to play the game. He first said his grandmother had died. He didn't get time off. He said his mother was seriously ill. He didn't get time off. And then he said, I want to go play cricket. And they said, all right, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Gideon, how many books came out of the summer game? Mahesh and I I counted two. Two. We counted two, uh, Jack Iverson, of course, uh, yeah. and, and uh, Doc Doc Everett. Uh, I think. Uh, who, yes. Who that I didn't see a... coming
2: at all. That I didn't see coming at all. I'm like, <laughs> I've seen this name somewhere. I've not read that book of yours, but yeah. I've seen this name somewhere. And like I was thinking, oh, my God, that's his recent. I mean, not recent. Like, I mean, now you're already three books uh, uh, mm-hmm. since. But that was one of your recent books. That's when I made the connect. Did you, did, did you have the seeds of these books germinating in your mind when you were writing that? Or they just came about later?
1: Well, I mean, in some respects the seeds of the summer game are in the cricket war. Um, you know, it was simply taking it back a generation uh, in order to understand the antecedents of, uh, of of the World Series cricket breakaway. So you often find the um the seeds of of of, of one book in uh, in others. Um it's very rare that a book just springs now, it, virginally from uh, from 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 the soil, you mm. need to have kind of tilled it a few times. You need to have turned things over before <laughs> maybe two or three things come together and combine. And you think, yeah, there's actually probably a book in that, um, and I could do it this way, or I, or I could do it that. Uh, the other uh, the other thing that the the other book that kind of um, got me thinking about. Um, the summer game was I read a book called the summer of 49 by David Halberstam, which is um, about the first kind of great post-war world series in, uh, in the U S and it was a book that, um, that contextualized this world series uh, in the United States of, of the era that immediate kind of post-war era uh the, 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 the dawn of a, of a golden age of, 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 Prosperity and the uh, and the concatenation of uh, a great group of of individual players uh, happening almost magically and and condensing to this to this one particular World Series. I didn't want to do exactly the same book. I didn't want to concentrate on a single series. I could see the decades between Bradman and Chapel naturally broke themselves off uh, as a period, but something about Halberstam's kind of holistic approach his ability to work from the micro to the macro and uh, and and back again uh certainly informed the, the way in which i uh, i went about the summer game
0: interesting you mentioned the the forty summer of 49 and not the 50s which was also like a famous Halberstam book. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, and which is a fantastic book, a fabulous book, uh, and of course he um, he did the book on the '64 World Series as well. So it was a, it was a period that Halberstam uh, traversed regularly, and I think he's a wonderful journalist. He's that fascinating combination of uh, of, of journalist and, and historian who, who can work at, uh, at both. Uh, in, in huge kind of contextual sweeps and also at the, at the level of um, granular anecdote.
2: So I, I read this book pretty late. I, I think, I don't know if you remember, so you had some copies left and I, one, of the, uh, one of the guys on Twitter posted a screenshot of him buying one of your new books that you were selling directly and also oh. this one. I'm like, come on! You haven't told me this. I have, I have not been able to find this book for so long. Then I, I emailed you. You immediately sent it to me, and I have the the ABC reprint copy. Right. I read your you foreword for that, and uh, and you make a, a uh, perhaps it's a very obvious point for you, but it sounded very profound for me at that time. Is that you know you, you realize at the point at the point of writing this book that history doesn't get written on its own. Somebody's got to do the writing, yeah. And, and that's true of both your cricket war and this. It's, yes. So did you did you have the sense when you were writing it, or is that like is that a sense that you arrived at much later when you were writing the forward for the second edition, for instance?
1: No, I knew while I was doing it that I was uh uh in some respects, I was glad that I'd got to these people while they were still cluey, uh while they were still um uh communicative. Um uh they were very welcoming, and very hospitable. Uh, um, they they felt a bit forgotten, but they weren't especially resentful because, as I said, cricket had just been part of their lives. It hadn't. It hadn't by any means been their whole lives. Uh, there was not in those days the long afterglow of of celebrity. There were not the media possibilities that the, the the reflected limelight that um that a media career can uh, can provide that that long slow fade once cricket was over for a lot of these guys it was over um and they went about building careers and and building families and and having children and um becoming grandfathers and uh, and you know by that stage uh they were looking back with um with uh Fondness and um, and reflectiveness uh, about the experiences that they'd had. But I frequently left interviews thinking, I'll probably never see this person again. Uh, and I'm very grateful that I have managed to get their recollections down. Now, I never hurried them. Uh, I never had to hurry them. Uh, these interviews were going to take as long as they took. Sometimes they took a whole day. I would turn up at half past nine in the morning. I wouldn't leave till you know, five or six in the in the afternoon. Um, sometimes I went back on a second occasion to, uh, to, to get more. Uh, you know, it was, the interviews were more like conversations. You know, I didn't go with lists of explicit questions. What I went with was pretty thorough and meticulous knowledge of their careers, what other people had said about them, what had been written about them. Um, the sort of things that they might have thought about, uh, the sort of things that they might have experienced. Um, I was always very curious to learn about uh, their families, you know, their upbringings, um, how they met their partners, um, how they balanced the responsibilities of, of being a uh, breadwinner with with being a, a, an underpaid cricketer. Um, some of the stories were, were pretty tough, you know, players that aren't really tough in order to play for Australia. Uh, in that period, it's a period of relatively high inflation. The value of the Australian currency is constantly being eroded. Uh, the the match fees and, and tour fees for Australian cricketers are not keeping pace with, um, with, the, with the cost of living. Um, it becomes harder and harder. It involves greater and greater sacrifices to play for Australia. Of course, they felt enormously grateful to have had that opportunity, But, you know, there'd been lots of compromises, lots of sacrifices along the way, and it was very interesting to tease those out. Sometimes you actually ended up talking to the wives as well, and the wives had interesting perspectives. Now, the story of um, uh, Mrs Burge, uh, I don't know whether you remember that, Um, they're driving across the Story Street Bridge after a day's play during a test match, and she says... um, you know, she's heavily pregnant, and she says, "You know, turn left here for the hospital because my words have just broken." So, <laughs> <a fantastic> <laughs> just explode. Yeah, you know, yeah, there
2: you go. That's what happens. I love that final chapter where you cover the like. For instance, when I started reading the book, you're talking about tours which you're taking 170 days and 180 yeah. days, yeah. and natural. The natural question for a modern sort of uh, from the modern prism is. Oh my God! What about the family? What about the rest yeah. of their lives? And and what happened if somebody fell sick? What happened? And and naturally, like you know, I was thinking about Virat Kohli leaving Australia for her childbirth. Rohit Sharma leaving Australia for childbirth. Mm-hmm. they were not leaving, of course. But what was happening? And they couldn't have seen them for six months. And and then you answer my question in one of the later chapters where you kind of dig deep yeah. into this.
1: A lot of cricketers had children on tour. Um, and you know, dependent on their wife to to look after those arrangements. I think my favorite story was the one that John Rutherford told me about. He was engaged uh, when he went on the fifty sixth tour of um of of England. and he got a letter halfway through the tour from his fiance saying she didn't think that she could carry on the engagement because she was just too lonely. She was too lost. So he booked, he had to book himself a trunk call to Australia, to, to, and it took him weeks to do, weeks to arrange it, and they had to tee up a time that they would both be available on the phone, and it happened to coincide with him being on the field in a game, and he heard the commentator on the radio talking about, oh, there's Rutherford, you know, coming off the field is here for a call of nature, and, uh, and you know, little know little, being unaware, of course, that he'd had to... To call his fiance in order to salvage their relationship. The 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 happy side of that story was that he married her and they had children and lived happily ever after. But those kind of those kind of contingencies did arise, and players had to make allowances for them.
0: And then there is this bit where uh, about the sixty nine tour of India, where. Uh, or maybe it was one of the earlier tours of India where one of the players falls seriously sick, but then requests the press person to not write it yeah. because then the family would get really worried. the
1: family, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, that 59 60 tour of, um, of India and Pakistan, where I think four players go home sick, despite the fact that they brought a, a, a doctor on the tour, um... It's uh, that's an extraordinary event. Actually, the doctor on the tour was um, was Colin McDonald's brother, Ian, uh, who was an infectious diseases um, doctor in Melbourne, and he did a course in tropical medicine in order to to accompany the Australian team. It just so happened that, of course, he'd kept wicket for Victoria, so he was a useful man to to have around as a potential reserve cricketer. But he lent me his diary of that trip. And it's absolutely fascinating. You know, not many diaries were kept in, in, in that era, but he had one. And, of course, it's written from this, from a medical perspective. Uh, you know, the challenges, the day-to-day challenges of getting a team through a tour of the subcontinent uh, in conditions of extremely variable hygiene a very, very long way from home. Um, lovely man, Ian, but uh, and had a fascinating story to tell.
0: Yeah, so just want to wrap up with the uh, the final bit where, you know, of course, you write a lot about Bob Simpson and Bill Laurie uh, through the late 60s. But for me, like towards the end of the book, especially when you have the postscript and you mention how the day Laurie was dropped. Yes. yes. And it's the equanimity with which he accepts yes. that at that point okay. of time it just speaks so much to that time or is it for me it's like it was such an apt uh summary of the book and then you have that sheen quote right at the end where he sort of contrasts laurie with chapel and talks about how australia had gone from being this place where an autocratic leader uh, was then giving way to someone so much more anti-establishment and that was such a beautiful way to sum it but just i'm just thinking of again, the Bill Laurie in my imagination is, of course, totally different and has been uh, yes. commentary has played a big role in it. It's all happening at the WACA. But uh, the Bill Laurie who was told he was dropped, he just it, no emotion. He just said, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. You could probably see it coming, Bill.
1: You know, he's pretty, pretty sane, pretty, um, pretty sober, um, intelligent man. Um, I mean, in some respects, the strangest selection is is Australia not taking Laurie on the tour of England in 1972, when they really didn't have anyone to open the batting. You know, they used a mixture of Bruce Francis and uh, and and Graham Watson to uh, and and Ross Edwards to to get through that tour. Um, you know, Australian cricket was pretty unsentimental in those days. It, once you uh, fulfilled your um, your usefulness. Uh, you were moved on pretty quickly. Uh it's a different time, it's a different set of attitudes. I think that um, you know, that period does radicalize Chapel. I mean, if he hadn't been inclined that way anyway, the circumstances of the 6970 tour of India and South Africa, followed by the uh, hasty justice meted out to Bill, would have would have done so. Um so, you know, sort of from that, from that point on, you, you sense that Ciappelli, there's going to be some sort of reckoning between him and the establishment. It takes a while because it takes a long while for a Kerry Packer to appear and for... Um, John Cornell and Austin Robertson to emerge as intermediaries between uh, the media baron and the, and the disgruntled players. You know, you've got that kind of perfect storm of circumstances in 1977 that makes world series cricket possible. But, you know, in order to understand uh, where you're going, it's, uh, it's often pretty important to understand where you've been. And, um, and I, I certainly think that, um, Summer game even now has sort of lessons to teach us about the way in which generational change, if it's not managed, uh, can become very difficult for the game to contain. Um, you know, certain, certain forces uh, are irresistible, even when they meet immovable objects.
0: Would you say, uh, looking back at it and given everything that you've written, would you say that that was probably one of your more sentimental works? And I mean that in a good way.
1: Uh, I'm a pretty sentimental kind of guy. (laughs) Uh, There's a degree of of sentimentality or maybe disillusioned idealism in, uh, in everything I I write. Uh, I'm not a cynic. It's, Every other bugger who's a cynic. (laughs) I'm I'm like Diogenes, you know, walking around with a lantern looking for an honest man. Um, It was certainly one of the loveliest uh, books I've ever done. You know, there was a great um range of experiences, fascinating group of personalities to uh, to survey an enormous privilege to uh, to spend so much time with these people and it's a book that I've gone back and back to because it is a time capsule. It, it is a period that's now almost um almost all the people that I interviewed in in that book are gone um So in some respects I can feel as though I did cricket a good turn. By, by getting them, um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a gift. As corny as it sounds, it is actually a gift to, uh, to, to cricket, a gift to posterity. And my, um, you talk a bit about the way in which I, I, I quote a lot of these players. You know, I, I made a point of ensuring that their voices were heard because in some respects I felt as though I was helping them write the book that they wouldn't otherwise write. Uh, I wanted to to create um uh their own their own testimonial, I guide their testimonial at the same time by by introducing sort of aspects of the of the macro environment, uh but um to help them tell their own tale in, in much the same way as I did in 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 the cricket war. Um they're all out there and it was it was a matter of me doing them honor.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. Thank you again, Gideon. And for all our listeners, this is a treat uh, waiting for you. I will put the links to where you can buy this book. I hope that all of you pick it up, read it, take your time. It's uh, it's it's a really rewarding book because it's uh, quite long, but it, it really nourishes by the end of it. And you, again, you, you, it's not really I would think of it as much more than a cricket book. It is a book about Australia in the 50s and 60s, as Mm. far as I'm concerned, with cricket as a kind of a lens through which he's telling the stories. But then marvelous. I mean, Jack, uh, we didn't even talk about Jack Iverson, uh, the subject of, of course, uh, Mm. uh, such a good book of yours. But even that little bit that you write about him in the book, it's so touching. It's so... It, it just leaves you with feeling, oh, what a cricketer he must have been. And then, of course, you did us a treat by writing okay. a whole book about him. So, yeah. yeah.
2: There's so many fascinating characters. I mean, even the chat sh- we started with was with about an obscure cricketer. And there was another like uh, leg spinner or a spinner who flourished pretty late in his life, right? I forgot his name now. I can Peter, Peter Philpott.
1: Oh, Peter Philpott, yeah. yeah. Who, who, died, who died only recently. And I, and I thought... I could cast my mind back to the day that I watched a game of school cricket with him talking about his career. Now, he was coaching at, at, at that time and, you know, we just sat on the boundary edge uh, and chatted, chatted for three or four hours while this, while this game was on. He was shouting encouragement to the kids on the field when they came off. He, he went and talked to them and then he'd come back and um, just a lovely day of talking cricket with a, with a terrific bloke. Um, lots of days like that in the course of the, of the summer game. And it's, and it's, it's been a pleasure to, to relive them with you. Well, I should thank you two guys for taking an interest in the, in the book. Um, I certainly appreciate it because I'm,
0: I'm going to get a copy again.
1: That'll be nice.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. yeah. I mean, and, 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 you know, talking about cricketers, there are so many cricketers who you can understand so much better in this book. I mean, for me personally, it was uh, Graham McKenzie. I mean, yeah. you you hear about Ray Lindwall, you hear about Dennis Lilly and Thompson, but then there's this huge gap in between that McKenzie filled, and you see his record, and you're like, yeah. such a fantastic cricketer, and so little written about him. And then, of course, you have Gideon writing yeah. it's awesome. really well about him.
1: Awesome. awesome cricketer, and a lovely, lovely man as well, yeah. Fantastic. They're so so lovely, yes, guys. they were lovely men. They, they, they really are. Um, they really were and, uh, and it's, uh, and it's a great period. It's a great period, which of course I never saw, but somehow the cricketers that you never saw, uh, lead such richer
0: lives for, uh, for the way in which they're created in your imagination. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for bringing them to life. And it's our pleasure and honor. To bring back this book to life. As I said, I read this in 2003 and I thought, what a fantastic book. And then I realized it went out of print. And I'm like, okay. And now I have actually have the power to do something about it. So (laughs) (laughs) it comes, please pick it up. Uh, Keep it on your shelves. The physical copy is great. you know Mahesh will uh, snigger a bit, uh, but uh, the physical book. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can pick up the other Two books that we have republished as well, but yeah, this is about uh, this particular episode, Summer Game. Uh, thank you, Gideon, and uh, we hope to have you again at some point of time uh, to talk about uh, other books and other things and uh, politics and cricket and uh, riding the chariot in Ahmedabad, et etc. But thank you for joining. Does it, does it politics in cricket? <laughs> Absolutely thank you 81allout.com is our website at 81allout is uh twitter handle uh, please rate and review the podcast if you can if you like it it really helps for more people to find us and we'll join you soon for another episode in a week or 10 days time thank you india have won the, test match. India have won the series they're going to get back for two india